0: we're Welcome everyone to another episode of The Unbalanced Note. I'm Brian Kluger and I am joined by the man who I want to be a vice principal with, who I want to uh, start a religion with uh, and practice karate with, Mark Chaffordini. How are you doing, sir? Why we are on this particular
1: podcast, we will never know. But I do know that the three of us will emerge victorious once again.
0: (laughs) Yes, we sure will. It is going to be an excellent day. Dallas, Texas, beautiful, sunny out. Uh, Mark and I still social distancing somewhat, but we have a very special episode today. We have an excellent musician, multi-instrumentalist, composer of film and television, the intercontinental champion, joseph stevens from charlotte north carolina how are hello, you sir? hello hello.
2: <laughs> you doing all right i'm doing well thanks thanks for doing, having me
0: oh so good to talk with you for everyone listening joseph stevens of course uh he excellent musicians he's done he's done film and tv such as vice Principals, eastbound and down uh arizona and the last OG and righteous gemstones. We can't wait to talk about all of that with you. But first, let's just get into it, Joseph. Let's get into it. Where did it all begin with you in music? Was it a, a song you heard on the radio? Something your parents played you? When did it all begin? That's a good question. I
2: I was you know in, in junior high. I think I got the bug. I played in in a band. Played trumpet in band. And then um, discovered rock and roll and kind of, uh, you know, wanted to do that. Um, Learned guitar at eighth grade or so, and everything kind of changed after guitar. Uh, Yeah, I listened to, I guess, like Alice Cooper when I was a kid. uh, That was a turning point for me, discovering sort of the bad side of rock and roll, the naughty stuff, like the kind of the dark side. And... um, wanted to do that and yeah just became obsessed with guitar and uh writing songs initially and then that kind of evolved into the world of film score
0: that's cool so with alice cooper is that was it like schools out for the summer
2: or feed my frankenstein yeah i was into the um i got into the early alice cooper stuff um schools out this album love it to death was like one of his first albums with um i'm 18 and so I didn't gravitate as much towards the 80s, uh, 90s uh, version of Alice Cooper. I was much more into the uh, late 60s, 70s, original Alice Cooper band um, that produced a lot of, uh, it, was, it was before it got like super shock rock. He um, it was, it was more uh, glammy, I suppose. Uh, then in the 80s, it got more shocky and, you know, all the theatrics, uh, 70s and 80s, I guess. Uh, but yeah, I mean. Yeah, school's out's a good <laughs> touchdown. <laughs> so,
0: so you said you started with trumpet and then transitioned into into guitar. What was uh, what was that process like? And uh, I guess rock and roll was the big influence on going from trumpet to guitar, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think for trumpet, it was more like you know, I was in, I was a kid and everybody everybody was joining band. It was like a social thing. You know, everybody wanted to play saxophone or something cooler than the trumpet. Um, And so I just joined kind of, I guess I had a uh, somewhat of a attraction to it, although I don't really, I did, you know, I think my attraction to guitar, I identify with much more. So like getting into trumpet was just sort of like something I did just to do something as a kid, uh, because my friends were doing it. Um, But, and then I guess at the end of junior high, I had a buddy that had a guitar and we just had, once... I was like enamored by it and and how to play it, and not knowing anything about it and kind of like I just had an inherent um, yearning for it or like thirst to to, to play it um and so took classical guitar lessons um, after my buddy like kind of getting involved with him, like you know he had he had like an electric guitar, he had some like cheap Ibanez you know and a crate amp and I had nothing and I was. we would like ben. hang out and I was just like this is so cool I mean how do I get a guitar like that and my parents had some kind of like family classic guitar classical guitar that was just kind of like laying around and I picked it up and that led to taking lessons classical lessons and then that evolved into me getting an electric guitar and like plugging it into a stereo and using like a before I had an amp and just kind of like evolving like some very baby steps um Away from trumpet, um, after after junior high, I didn't really mess around with um, trumpet anymore. Like it was, it was purely like a couple of years um, in junior high. Although I was pretty good, um, but yeah, once guitar came into the picture, that that, that became the uh, the number one instrument for me. that definitely the go to.
0: No, I like that you said Ibanez because my first guitar I ever had was an electric white Ibanez.
2: Yeah, that my his was white.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that brought me back. Uh, so. I guess when you're you're in junior high and going to high school and doing the uh, guitar thing and rock stuff, did that bring on all, all the women, all the girls
2: for you? <laughs> <laughs> no, not for me. I mean, maybe, uh, I will say that, like, so, like, midway through high school, I was maybe a junior or a sophomore. These older kids got me, and I was a part of the band with some older guys, and it was like they wanted me to play in the band because I could play fast guitar, you know, and so I remember playing this, uh, we did like Comfortably Numb um, and like Brown Eyed Girl, I think, for a a talent show. There was like a nighttime talent show for the parents and then a daytime talent show the following day that would be during school hours. And so during that school hours um, performance, we played Comfortably Numb and I did this like long guitar solo. And it was crazy because it was like, you know, the entire student body and they just went nuts. And it was, it was very, I got like this crazy buzz, you know, like from just ripping a a very, probably very derivative guitar solo. Like, you know, just (laughs) swaying back and forth, just trying to like, try not to mess up. Um, But it was like hearing the crowd reaction was very palpable and it was very real. Um, It did not lead to like, um, you know, a lot of girls' interest, Um, but it was, uh, you know. I guess that that's uh comes with the territory in high school on a high school, you know, uh band, you know. Not, right. not, not uh, too risky, not too dangerous.
0: <laughs> no, I hear you. I was in band in uh, middle school and high school. I, I get that. <laughs> <laughs> um so you after high school, you went to what the University of North Carolina, the art school, right?
2: No, I went to uh UNC Greensboro, which is right next to School of the Arts where which is probably what you're referring to. Um A lot of my buddies, a lot of the guys that I work with um, went to school, at School of the Arts. And I got to know them during college, but I didn't go to that college. I I had a buddy that I was in high school with that was in college with, and then he transferred over to School of the Arts and we were in a band together. And so when he transferred over there, I would go over there and we would hang out with like friends, you know, people that he was meeting there, like new, new people, you know, college, um, you know, meeting new folks. And we formed a band and uh, made some connections, just like, you know, just uh, teenagers and early 20s. And then from that, you know, some of those guys went on to make some really cool things. And I w- was lucky enough to be involved with a lot of those things. And what was that band, Pyramid? Initially, the, yeah, Pyramid for the most part. There was a couple, there was like another iteration of something before Pyramid, but yeah, Pyramid was the kind of, the initial, like the, the the one that we all kind of tried to make happen as a band.
0: All right. And was, did you play around like locally around the college bars and uh, scene and what kind of music was that?
2: Well, we didn't really play too low. We, we, it was at that point, it was kind of a recording project. It was very experimental and we just kind of hold up in a basement and um, <clears throat> just get out there and just record everything to ADAT and just get very experimental. It's like six or six to eight of us, um, very eclectic group. And we had no we didn't play conventional songs. We weren't out there looking to like really book shows. It was all like really long instrumental um, pieces that would go on for some time, like, you know, 20 minutes or so uh, very like out there. Um, but then after college, we kind of honed it into more of a song oriented thing and, um, and then made an album and try, like did some regional touring, you know, up to New York and we went out West. Um, not, not too elaborate. we um, were a tough band too take on the road because there were so many of us and we had a lot of junk that we were bringing and trying to do on stage and it was uh, it was tough um, but yeah I mean so we, we gave it a run um, but yeah that that's uh, you know it was, it was a fun time.
0: And so at college you met David Gordon Green, Jody Hill and Danny McBride and can you do you remember like the time the actual moment that you actually met them or it's like oh my god we're gonna be friends for a while? <laughs>
2: No, actually, I wasn't, um, you know, I met David, I think David was a, the core group that I hung out with at that school was Danny and Jody's uh, year. I feel like David may have been a year ahead of them. So I didn't really know him that well. Uh, we had met, and I remember when he made George Washington, um, like meeting him, like getting to know him a little bit then. Uh, but but mostly, I guess I knew Jody probably the best in college. Um, But all of them, like, I got to know a lot better uh, afterwards, after the Foot Fist Way. truthfully. Um, Like, we were all, it was all kind of hinged around that band. So some of the members of the band band were, were, uh, some of the members were closer to Danny and uh, Jody than I was, per se, even though I knew them all um, kind of, you know, in college. Uh, It wasn't until afterwards that we started, you know, Foot Fist Way and some of the things that we were, Trying to get done um, out of college in our twenties, that that I became closer to uh, to those guys, and then certainly after Foot Fist Way in East Bend Town, we became really good friends.
0: Right, and you were you were actually in Foot Fist Way, right? Like was little, yeah. <laughs> uh, which I remember that movie when it came out, and I was like, oh my god, this is like the next Andy Kaufman, brilliant thing because he like kept character uh as is fred simmons character on interviews and i thought that was really cool and you got to provide some of the music for that right
2: yeah uh, my band did the music and my band and this other band the dynamite brothers another local band they basically scored that movie um and yeah i mean that was hilarious i worked on the i did sound i was the sound mixer on that movie too and so it was yeah hearing danny just (laughs) All the time being hilarious it was just it was painful the amount the amount of laughter um, behind the scenes on that it was just so fun because we had nothing to lose no one knew what was going to happen we were just doing it to do it you know and and, and danny you know just just cut loose and, and gave it his, his all and it was uh it was a lot of fun for sure yeah it was a wild ride and taking it to sundance and all of that you know was um feel very fortunate to have been a part of that it was it felt it felt so unique because we're all such a tight group at that point and it was Everything was happening really fast, especially for Danny and Jody Uh, it was just real cool. Good time. So you're
1: in North Carolina. Uh, Danny moved to South Carolina not too long ago um, how's the working dynamic been? uh, now that he's a little closer than la and um, you know, has your working relationship changed over the years?
2: No, I mean anything it's gotten closer. I think that we've um I've always been, with projects with Danny, I've always been involved pretty early on. So even sometimes as far as like for vice principals, I was involved before they even started writing it. Um, and so it was, so once, you know, as we're going through the process and the writing and, and, and then pre-pro and then shooting and all of that, I've kind of always kind of working in the background, sending music and sending ideas just to kind of, um feel my way around to see kind of where, where they are, uh, what's sticking and what, um, what seems like might be working, even though there's no picture, nothing to look at. It's just purely like I'm from a musical standpoint. Um, So my relationship is they've always shot those, all of those projects have always been shot on the East coast, even though they, even before they moved out to the East coast. So once the production is up and running, I would go to set a lot and, you know, hang out. Um, Now it's, it's obviously even easier because they're. I see more of them now because I. You know, it's easier to, to visit than it is to. You know, can just drive down, and as opposed to flying out west. Um, that said, I haven't seen anyone in a while uh, because of quarantining. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, I I think our relationship, work-wise, has kind of been the same. If you know, if anything, I see them more outside of work. Um, but during the job, it's kind of the same. I get involved pretty early, and you know, I get I see scripts pretty early and. I mean, I like uh, I like giving the editors things to work with and just so we're all kind of in the vibe of the show. And also it helps with, for me personally, when they're editing and if they have things that, that are original for me that they can play with. So I'm not looking at a lot of temp score. I'm not messing around with stuff that would need to be replaced. So it kind of gives a leg up to me on that side of things as well.
1: Well, you know, speaking of David Gordon Green, another uh, frequent collaborator of his is composer David Wingo, and mm-hmm. he always tries to get in as early as possible. And you know, to the point where kind of like you were saying, you would send some things and it may actually improve or help the writing. So do you just do you feel more comfortable on the front end or do you find the excitement of I've got two weeks to score something that I've never seen it before? What's a little more exciting for you?
2: Well, I don't know. I guess it kind of depends on the material somewhat like for Vice Principals. I got in so early on that and it was just I was exploring all these synthesizers and uh, and trying to figure out drums, all these weird drum configurations. So that was like it was like a, a sort of a new frontier. A lot of it was, um, especially with the drums, uncharted territory for me. So it was that would have been different had there been a, a deadline or if, if I was up against a wall, that would have been a little more stressful. Um, but I think that you know some jobs where I'm just kind of playing melancholy piano or playing some sort of something on guitar. Like the scores are driven towards something that's less experimental then then maybe the the pre the pre work that I do is less um, engaging or something. Like I mean, I, I really enjoy like uh, tackling new things, and so part of the, the reason that I try to get involved early is like, a lot of times I'm wanting to do something new for myself and. So either it's like tackling a new like, you know, software, synth or an instrument or, or a new genre. It's always nice for me to have the the, the, the leeway to get involved without the burden of time code and, the, and schedules. Um, that said, I do thrive on that. You know, I, I enjoy um, schedules. Sometimes too much time is a bad thing. Um, so I like having uh, deadlines, um, although... You know, it's like anyone, I'm sure if if you have too much to do before the deadline, it can be very stressful. Um, but I don't know if I thrive one way or the other better, uh, you know, one way or the other. So I feel like I enjoy both sides of things in moderation.
1: No, per- perfect. You know, I, I, I've spoken to Henry Jackman, and he likes to use the expression beard stroking. And a lot of times composers don't have that opportunity. You know, sometimes you do just have to sort of hit it and and hope that you like it the next day like you did the night before. Right, um, yeah. But then again, you know, kind of like you said, if you can sit on something too long, you may overthink it. Have you re- gotten to any situations where, you know, like to say your first answer is your best answer and you oh, kind of yeah. come
2: back to that? Yeah, that happens a lot, I think. Um, I mean, and I try to move pretty quick. I I, you know, I feel like I've learned to not overindulge sometimes where if I, unless it's a, unless it's something I'm really feeling, um, I try to record a lot and get down a lot of ideas, you know, on a, on a weekly basis. And so in general, I don't like, try to flush out those ideas too much unless there's, um, you know, unless I'm on the clock, so to speak. Uh, but yeah, like as I'm kind of scoping out ideas, I don't sit with them too long. I get them all down and I, you know, archive them, but I don't flush them out to their fullest and, for the most part until there's actually a need to do that and i think that probably helps to keep it fresh and to not overthink things because certainly i've paired things back i've done things where it's in the end we just go with the first take you know or we just go with the first mix or we just you know pair you know take out all the all the fluffy you know stuff that i added to it you know after initially pitching <laughs> some ideas often the fluffy stuff gets pulled out and it gets taken back very bare bone
1: well, you know, inspiration can come in any form, and I have to commend you. I love that charcoal painting behind you. Um, are you finding any any more inspiration quarantined in tight quarters, or do you like to be out and on the set and, you know, engaging with people?
2: I have, you know, I don't, I mean, when I go to set, I, it's not like I go to set that often. Um, and I don't, in general, I just kind of like get the vibe for, you know, what? what the, you know, what the, Scenes are like, I um, in kind of the vibe of the crew. I don't, I don't, I don't really hang out on set too often. Uh, when I visit, it's it's pretty in and out. Um, that said, yeah, I think that for like for taking this quarantine, for example, I've um, kind of jumped into modular synthesizers and and forced myself to learn things that I haven't really explored much um, in the past. In large part because. I haven't really had the time to, um, and like modular synthesizers are very hands-on. You, you can't save anything. You can't recall sounds. Everything changes every time you touch anything on any, any of the modules or any, any of the synthesizers. And so it, it allows for like a, a fresh, um, experimentation or a fresh palette of sounds and, um, sort of uncharted territory, which can be very liberating and exciting. Um, so for this quarantine, I've been doing a lot of that. Um, and you know, there's new software that I've been exploring. Um so yeah, I mean that that's basically where the inspiration that I'm I'm been getting is coming from is uh sort of new instruments outside of the piano. I play a lot of piano too. Um but yeah. So,
0: so you you're described as a multi instrumentalist. Uh, how many instruments do you play, and can you list them all alphabetically?
2: <laughs> uh, I don't want to do the alphabetically, um, but yeah, I think a lot of guys like me are, you know, I think a lot of modern composers are multi multi instrumentalists, where that you know it, it benefits them to be able to provide a lot of sounds, um, without having to outsource to other musicians. Um, so, I mean, I have like a drum kit, um, record drums, piano, guitar, all the, you know, all the kind of like rock band type things I can play. Um, I can play trumpet, trombone. Um, I don't, I don't play those very often. Yeah. I mean, it's usually just the kind of standard, uh, Piano, guitar bass stuff. I have a bunch of string instruments like dulcimers and dobras and things like that that aren't really guitars. Um, and ukuleles and mandolins, that kind of thing. Um, they're all, but they're all the same, you know, sort of technique. Um, so I'm kind of like stuck in that world. I, I don't, I don't have an orchestral background, so I don't, I don't play cello or any of the bowed instruments. Although I have bows and I bow a lot of things: um, cymbals and metals and guitars and drums and stuff. But it's uh, for all of that kind of instrumentation, I always have to outsource, you know. To, to right.
0: So being, you know, the conductor, the composer and all of this stuff and then this musician, are there any instruments that you prefer? Are there any instruments out there that just don't make sense to you that?
2: <laughs> that don't make sense? Um... Yeah,
0: I will, we've we've talked with a few people that they, they there's some instruments that are like, why is this an instrument? <laughs> there's one that's way better. So I was curious if there's one <laughs> like that for you. <laughs>
2: No, I don't. I don't know that there's an instrument that I would have an aversion to. Um, I think that, uh, yeah, I I, ex- I love uh, doing weird things with instruments. For the Arizona score, there's a lot of um, in lieu of um, some of the stringed elements of that. I went and bowed uh, with a big cello bow and a, and a one of those bass um, bows. Just basically every piece of metal that's in my house and. The timpani drum and uh, and for in lieu of uh, like cello and a lot of string stuff, I had this I had this old um, I guess it's a Silvertone old Silvertone guitar that's a real beater. It's very I don't know where I got it and it's just kind of worthless. But it it can't be tuned and it's just it's uh but it you know it's it, it does emote like a certain acoustic quality that for whatever reason I was attracted to for that. I think it was because it feels kind of gross and it feels kind of on edge and and um, unusual and sort of sloppy in a good way. And so I did a lot of bowing on, on that just to create sort of a cello sound, um, sort of that cello range. I, I tuned it really low. Um, and so, but yeah, I just to, to create a sort of a cello sound without having it, you know, be a conventional cello. Um, so, I mean, I I love pushing as much as I can, at least the instruments that I have on hand. You know, I like to push them in different directions. Um, so I don't I mean, in terms of what I wouldn't, wouldn't like, an instrument that, Seems futile. What would that be? I guess like uh,
0: a French horn.
2: <laughs> no, I like French horn. <laughs> I don't know what that would be. I mean, like, like maybe a. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Like, I feel like there's value to most instruments. Otherwise, you know, they they are they wane themselves out. Who wouldn't know about them. Uh, I'm trying to, I mean, I don't know what a use. Maybe a. I, don't know. You got me there. I can't of what instrument I would choose to dislike <laughs> <laughs> well we'll come back to that we'll come yeah. back
0: to that um so you you've worked with Danny mcbride on a ton of his stuff from um from eastbound and down uh from that excellent score music even from the opening theme song from freddie king which is great uh to righteous gemstones and vice principles but righteous gemstones i just love that opening uh title music that sounds very you know religious but also kind of like a rock vibe to it <laughs> <laughs> which i really love and then of course the song misbehaven which i guess you co-wrote and did uh, can you talk a little bit about doing the music for righteous gemstones and uh specifically the song misbehaven mama told me not to i did anyway misbehaven
1: Daddy said, "Don't," but I said, "I'm gonna misbehaving."
2: am on the windowsill, swimming in the creek,
1: catching crawdads and playing with a stick.
2: I wore lipstick and I got cold shaven Just two little country kids, kids outside misbehaving. Yeah, Jimsons was—it's been a blast. Um, in part, a lot because I don't know, like, like a lot of the things I do with Danny, he just kind of gives me a, a wide berth to explore, and so I was pushing. The idea of organs and using organs in weird ways. So I use like bass pedals and organs to be melodic as opposed to just solely used for supporting the, the low end bass side of a melody or or line. Um, so I was kind of and, and also running organs through a lot of pedals and a lot of delays and drenching them in reverb to make them sound kind of haunted and kind of wobbly. Um, so that was approaches are, are fun for me and very rewarding. It's also I did a lot of piano stuff. That's like I don't do a lot with the, the rough house guys just cause they, they, you know, they're so, ex- some of the music is so extreme, like with um, Vice Principals, which is, you know, the sort of horror synth slash drumline score. It uh, doesn't have as much room for sort of sentimental, basic melodic piano stuff. And so I was able to get some of that in there to um, Jim which was rewarding for me as well. Uh, and also I did some weird kind of percussion stuff where I recorded, a claw. Uh, this just do a the choreographers for the misbehaving scene. Um, they do in the scene. They had that uh, clogging bit. And the choreographers for the clogging. I brought them into a studio and just recorded them clogging. Just like put them on a little tiny stage, like a little like you know a couple inches high uh, wooden stage. It was built and just had them uh, clog. And I, I, sometimes I did it to BPMs that I could play with and match up to certain score pieces. Um, and then other times I went in and just kind of like orchestrated them essentially, just like got them to slow down and get quiet and speed up and just, you know, get, to, get them to kind of act in a, a human way and, and ebb and flow. And it implemented a lot of the, that clogging sound into the percussion of the score. So, so in theory, it's, it sounds like sort of familiar percussion, but maybe not quite familiar, or hopefully it feels bespoke and feels like authentic to the show, especially because I would mostly use it for um, Walton Goggins character uh, because it would remind, you know, the audience of, of him as a clocker. Um, so yeah, I mean, so things like that were super fun and, and it was awesome. But some of the, I got my wife to sing a bunch and do a lot of choral stuff and that was, you know, blast. Uh, and then, yeah, for Misbehaving, that was um, super effortless. <laughs> that was, um, <laughs> it just kind of happened where uh, it was, I knew it was lurking around in the background uh, as a idea for the show, but when it became like a, a when, when there became a need to actually create it, uh, it was pretty daunting at first. Like I, I remember having conversations with some of the crew who were kind of like jabbing me a little, a little bit about like, making me a little nervous about how I'm gonna have to create the song that needs to like be a hit. It needs to sound, legit and it needs to sound old and it needs to have kids singing. And it. it was like pretty you know, unusual request. Um, so before it was actually written, like, in it's in my, you know, the, the, the days building up to the, uh, the days and weeks building up to the, the writing of the song, it was a little daunting. Um, so I started creating ideas. Danny and Edie were spitballing ideas on their own and we collaborated on, uh, basically the idea that the idea that they had and, uh, just, everything's kind of clicked and I had all these lyrics and this certain kind of motif um, already in mind with stuff that I was working on and it all kind of fit into the idea that they had presented. And so it was just like a very like uh, easy collaboration. And once, so once, uh, you know, I got the sense or exactly what they were looking for, uh, it was easy to flush it out and to really like push it to its limits in, in a way that, that made sense given, um, the genre and the request that it needs to, you know, be a song and not over the top. It needs to sound like it's coming from a certain time period in time. And, uh, yeah, so that, that, and that evolved into like various iterations of that song, which was, which was kind of tough because we were, they were in the shoot at that point. And so that there were deadlines that I had to get, had to make these deadlines that were, um, because they were filming these things on stage and they're dancing to them and they were, we were coordinating with choreographers and um, so that was a little, that was new to me. Uh, It was fun. Um, You know, it was just a little, it felt a little run and gun at the time, but mostly I was just looking to get structure down like length of time, how much time is um, there's going to be dancing and how much, how much time is allotted to dancing. What's the tempo, you know, what's needed for the actors to deliver a take that they can uh, lip sync to, you know, or, you know, mime on camera. So it was like, basically my initial job was just to get a, a, essentially a mock-up that they can, that the actors feel comfortable using so they can give a performance that is legit. And then throughout post, I can fine tune everything and replace every, you know, a lot of things, you know, that are, uh, that would help um, support the performance side of the song, you know, be it like adding instrumentation or some, like editing stuff or just, fine tuning the vocals that they record a-, a lot of like studio tricks that I didn't necessarily sweat myself with early on because I just wanted to get, you know, some basic skeleton of the song that they can, the actors could work with that wasn't just me singing the song that they had lip sync to. So we, I wanted, you know, to create like a mock-up that was them singing. So they felt like it they could own it and be familiar with it. And, um, so that was kind of tough to get through all of that. I mean, the actual writing of the song was like a breeze. It was like just fun, it was just weird, and um, you know, I pitched some ideas and they all they're all in there. <laughs> it was uh, um, fun. I don't know. It was, it was it was great. I'm I'm very proud of Miss Maven.
0: <laughs> no, it's wonderful. And I, you know, upon watching the show for the first time and then listening to the song, you know, it just had that vibe of. Uh, Johnny Cash and June Carter mixed with a little bit of uh, maybe Christopher Guest, a Mighty Wind folks music, <laughs> <I see laughs> which I uh, which I love, and it's uh, that that you just like perfectly got that essence of all of that in that song, and uh, it and it went viral and it made news, and I just that's that's pretty badass.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we we were very excited about that. I mean, we've always been once it, once it was the demo was out there amongst ourselves. We were all very happy with it. You know, it just kind of made us happy, you know, not, uh-huh. not in any way other than just like a simple kind of like, this is fun. Like this song is like pure and uh, you know, innocent, but weird, um, it's quick. It's very in and out. It's very catchy. There's no like, there's no fat on it. You know, it's, it's very uh, to the point. And then once the kids got involved and like other singers, you know, Jennifer Nettles and Walton and Edie and the kids. And once they added their voices to the song, it really changed everything. It really made it feel unique. Right, no, it is. And I you
0: know watching it on YouTube and like the the number one best comment on that video for misbehaving is this song has no right to slap as hard as it does. (laughs) Which I think is a wonderful comment because I mean, it is so catchy and uh, amazing. Like it really makes you wanna get up and clog. So kudos (laughs) to that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, thanks. So here's kind of a geeky sort of logistical question. So you're coming up with the song. Do you have any idea that you're gonna need Um, someone with a guitar, someone with a tambourine, someone with a triangle, all of the sort of secondary characters that are in the background. Does, you know, do you know who's going to be on set or do you sort of deal with Dooley Wilson from Casablanca once you see the dailies and go, okay, I need to put in some piano here to mask because he doesn't know what he's doing?
2: Right. No, we had, um, I was in touch. That was another one of the elements that was kind of went into the whole, um, on screen stuff uh for misbehaving is that i was in touch with props department and the production designer and they were asking me what what instrument's going to be in there and for a time i didn't know you know i was pitching ideas i didn't know what was going to be in and so i would just throw things out there um and then at one point i would i added a harp to, to something and so they went and got a harp and put a harpist back there and um and i i think that so i worked in, in concert with those guys to kind of um to figure all of that out, you know, I knew, we knew basics, you know, we knew there'd be at least one guitar, piano, drums, and a bass. Um, And we knew there'd be some tambourine and somebody in the back um, singing backup. Uh, And so then as the song got more fleshed out, things that I would add to it, I would just kind of shoot an email out to music supervisor and the props, um, you know, the art department and AD department just saying like, I think we should add, if we can, let's add this and this. you know within reason we didn't i didn't go nuts you know we didn't have like a horn section back there which wouldn't have been nuts but uh you know we 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 kept it pretty basic and pretty simple but i was in touch with those guys the whole way i think that so for the um the second live version of misbehaving i guess it's an episode six where edie sings it with walton when walton sings it as a seven-year-old man um that's like a different band that's like a Kind of a bluegrass folky mountain band that's in the background and so that has like a fiddle in it and so i think that initially there wasn't i had added the fiddle um later and there's a bunch of percussion that's technically in the song that you can hear but i don't think is really accurately represented on screen i don't think there's as many percussion people on screen as you technically hear but it's pretty minimal yeah
1: Well, you know, it's so funny as I always find it funny when somebody is someone doesn't expect an actor to be able to sing because after all, you know, they're entertainers. So sometimes, though, someone can't carry a note. So how do you write for somebody that, you know, is going to need some embellishment or, you know, do, do you change the way you structure something or just do you make it easier on them? How does how do you go about that?
2: Well, there's a little bit of that. I think that first off, we we made sure that they were comfortable with the key that we were in, and so I created the demo for Miss and got it to everyone pretty quick. Um, and there was never any, you know, problems in terms of range for what was happening in the song. Um, and then, you know, Jennifer Nettles sings; she's she's a, like a phenomenal singer, and so she could she yeah. could handle anything. Um, so th- we weren't worried about her at all. We weren't worried about anybody, but. But yes, like Walton doesn't do a lot of singing. Um, and he also has to sing the song in character. Um, and he has to sing the song in character as, in, in in you know, two age groups. So as a 40 year old man and also as a 70 year old man. So he performed it differently, both song, you know, both versions. And so he kind of, he made a lot of adjustments in the studio um, to compensate for that. And then in post, like as I'm mixing it, um, you know, we did some, you know, Melodyning. <laughs> we did some, uh, some corrective stuff here and there just to make it uh, tight. Um, but it was pretty minimal. I mean, I think that we didn't really do any um, for Jennifer that I know of. <laughs> I know that we, her, her stuff was done in New York. And so when I got her tracks, um, yeah, I don't think that there was any you know pitch correction on her. Um, there was minimal stuff done to uh, to Walton but that was mostly because he was doing it in character and was just kind of like, you know, he was pushing himself to the limits as a 70 year old man would push himself to the limits. So it was like already inherently like, you know, not gonna sound as good as Jennifer Nettles. Um, but we just made some minor adjustments just to make it clean, you know, not in a way that would feel unnatural because it's basically that. And there's also, you know, stacking or uh, you know, using different takes, portions of different takes to create one long, uh, you know, seamless take. We did a bunch what? of takes.
1: Well, you know, I, I, I'm drawn to that artwork that's behind you. And so
2: <laughs> what I'm
1: wondering is, um, the song is fun, it's catchy, it's in English, it's a phenomenon, but this reminds me of, uh, I was watching the special features on Finding Nemo. So you know the part where the seagulls go, mine, mine? And they have mine translated in different, you know, different languages. So do you work with the studio to translate this into other languages or is this? I've never done that. Okay.
2: Yeah, no, no one's ever asked me about that. I mean, I think that we have to provide the lyrics to the song. I think as a part of the delivery, we have to um, give the, you know, the lyrics. Um, so there should be, shouldn't really be any discrepancy about what the lyrics are, but no one's ever approached me about the best way to say you know, certain lines you know, in various languages. It just, seems,
1: it just seems like you would have the, the dub or something in another language, but it seems like maybe for the integrity of the song, it would stay its original source language. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be Japanese, so to speak, but
2: yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I'm with
0: you. Uh, so with, with this song, Misbehaving, is there any plans... Are there any plans to uh, release this as like a badass uh, forty-five single on vinyl, the record? <laughs> both both versions.
2: We are. We have a um, yes. We have a, a record coming out with the uh, the soundtrack's coming out on Waxwork Records. Oh right. Um, oh. And so they're doing like a I think it's a double album of the um, score. And as a bonus, you within that you get a forty-five of um, misbehaven, which is the eighties version on one side and the sixties version on the other. So yeah, oh, that's what I, mean, what I hoped that, for. <laughs> What's that? That's what I hoped for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I'm. I can't wait myself. <laughs> now, do you
0: did you have any uh, hand in uh, actually pressing the record, or any part in any of the? No, position? I mean,
2: we we worked with Waxwork Record. Uh, with vice principals they put out vice principals so we have a relationship with them Um, yeah and devote the music music supervisor and I um, we curated the uh, like the track listing and like the playlists or this you know the track uh, playlist and so we that's about the extent that I was involved. Um, yeah, I mean, other than I've seen artwork and stuff like that, but I don't really chime in on it too much. I kind of let—I don't want there to be too many cooks in that kitchen. Um, I'm mostly concerned about you know what tracks are on there, and um, that's about that's about it. <laughs> that's
0: about it. Uh, no, that's that's amazing. And you you've been working on the last OG with Tracy Morgan and Never Have I Ever.
2: Well, I did I did not do season three of uh, the last OG. I did season uh-huh. one and season two um okay. but I did not do season 3 which just ended or just came out sometime earlier this year. But yeah, never have I ever uh I just did that at the end of last year it came out this past month on Netflix.
0: Yeah, no, it, all all wonderful and never have I ever has been huge. So, uh
2: Yeah, was, uh, That was a uh, that was awesome to see the reaction for that show. It was definitely a big deal for Netflix there um for a while. So, yeah, no, we're, f- we're we're all very excited about that so let's get into some some fun questions here We're some
0: fun questions so uh joseph let let what is your most thrilling music experience both as a fan and as a musician performing whether it be you know performing on stage somewhere in a cool venue or listening to your first concert you know live or what what were your most thrilling music experience as a fan and as a talent
2: um let's see well I, we did a show once years ago, the band Pyramid I was in, um, and there's two other bands did a we locally here. We rented out this theater and we basically covered all of our songs. And so there was, I don't know, maybe 15 of us on stage or something like that. Um, and we just, we, we did various songs from each other's catalog, uh, as a performer, that was super rewarding. It was very like it was awesome. It was just like the local crowd was like really into it. It was it was very special. We're all friends, you know, everybody on stage was, was friends and it was fun to reinterpret their songs as in, in these new configurations and then in turn have songs that I had written or our, you know, my band had written to be reinterpreted in other ways, um, but also being a part of those reinterpretations live um, on stage. So like on a personal level, like performance wise, that was a lot of fun. Um, I mean, I think also the first time that I recorded or was a part of um, a recording with, you know, a live string section and a in a pro studio was like pretty amazing. You know, it's it's to have these ideas that you create um, on a computer or, or you know on a piano and and then have them transcribed on a page and then have other people play them, to, and just like you know, it's just like this massive feeling of it's everything sounds huge and. I um, mean, it makes you want to do everything that way. It makes it. It makes you want to have everything done with an orchestra. Um, so I think that was super rewarding, um, like performance-wise. Um, in terms of like a fan, I know that I'm trying to think of like one of the best shows I've seen. I saw Will Oldham once. That was uh, pretty phenomenal. He he came out and played. A mysterious opening act and it was uh this band called the babblers that came out dressed in like kind of weird like pajamas and kind of like sunglasses and look they were very mysterious and they came out and played these songs that i never heard but i knew instantly that the singer for the babblers was will oldham and so basically he just like came out as this other um identity without any uh any forethought to the, the like the crowd had no idea there's no like uh, awareness uh, for the most part, unless you knew who will well, make sure. Obviously a lot of people there knew who he was, but I'm sure there were a lot that didn't know that that was him on stage before he was supposed to come out on stage. So he came out and played this like amazing set, really he's like crazy intense songs. And then he left. And then he came back out with the same band just as himself and did another set that was totally different. Uh, it was all, you know, his songs. And it was, it was very, I just remember like tears. People were very emotional around me. Um, <laughs> I mean, that was awesome. I mean, I think I, I, I saw the David Byrne um, tour, the the American Utopia tour last year. Not the Broadway thing, but the his tour last year was pretty epic. Um, I've had saw an opera in Vienna once with my wife on vacation, uh, and that was pretty amazing. Um, I feel
0: like if you're in Vienna, you have to see an opera, no matter yeah, whether exactly. you like it or not. That no, was <laughs> definitely like
2: on the books. Uh, for sure, we're <laughs> opera fans. Um, but the, uh, it was fun because we got, uh, I bought tickets and then, you know, sometimes if you're on a plane and you randomly will get upgraded to first class or to a better seat. Um, that hasn't really ever happened to me, but it has <laughs> happened. But when we got like to town for that trip, uh, I got an email from the opera house that said that we had been upgraded. And so we literally got upgraded all the way to the front row. And I mean, there's pros and cons of being that close. At an opera for me it was amazing just because uh i your look i could look down at the orchestra pit and see the, the entire orchestra and the stage we were a little like too close to the stage truthfully but it was i mean to get the whole you know picture but uh but it was like it was so intense just being that close to the musicians and the singers and the performers and it was like it was wild it was just it was just like very uh, and it's just in austria and the, the vienna state uh opera house like this historic like operas invented there you know, like one of the, the first opera houses and it was it was crazy it was very intense
0: very cool very cool um so being a music fan uh, do you have a, your own record collection i do so what is <laughs> the most curious the strangest recording on vinyl that you have as well as the strangest most bizarre curious recording maybe an mp3 form whether it be just something that's never been released an outtake or whatever a curious piece of uh music in your collection
2: well i don't really have a lot like my vinyl collection isn't uh that well curated i mean i i uh, i'm i'm admittedly a little you know later into the game uh, than some of my friends that are real audiophiles that have just like crazy collections with really rare pieces. I don't really have that many rare things. I think at this point I get a lot of stuff that's, you know, like the collector's um, edition of things. I'm one of those guys. Um, So I I mean, if I were to say like, what is my most rare piece of vinyl? I don't know. I got a Devo box set last year that I I really enjoy. It's not rare though. Um, Nothing's that rare. I don't really have anything that's like hard to get. I mean, maybe I have like a first pressing of a, appetite for destruction. Um, but I don't think that that's, that's uh, a,
0: that's a really <laughs> difficult one to
2: find first
0: pressing for sure.
2: I don't Maybe it's not first pressing, but it's definitely, a, you know, it's a good one. late eighties. Um, yeah, but yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't really have too much. That's like that rare. I'm trying to think.
1: Well then change it up. What, what means the most to you? What were you, what do you find yourself spinning a lot?
2: i listen to a lot of, um, electronic music, uh, on records uh i have i have a bunch of craft work um uh so i mean i that that's that's certainly a a go-to pretty often for me um around the house uh so i mean i'd say yeah some of the some craft work uh there's a lot of obscure i can't even think of their names i like read about things and i listen to it and i like it and i'll pick it up i'm looking at one there's this guy lindstrom um that's just sitting right there that's it's really good uh, and I love it, but I wouldn't say it's like my favorite. Um, I don't know that I have a favorite. There's nothing that I like, I like absolute favorite vinyl, unfortunately. <laughs> I just uh, I guess I'm a bit of a casual vinyl enthusiast.
0: <laughs> We've got a, have you heard of the, um, the they, they did a release a couple years ago. Um, it was here in Dallas, Texas. It's uh, Alice Cooper live at the AstroTurf. It was recorded at a record store here in Dallas, Texas. Have you heard of that?
2: No. What year?
0: um, It was recorded maybe two or three years ago at Good Records, and the guy who owns Good Records is the is uh, Tim DeLotter, who did Tripping Daisy and Polyphonic Spree, Mm -hmm. and uh, Alice Cooper came to the record the the store and did a crazy excellent uh show and they recorded it and they released on vinyl, and it won awards uh oh, wow. we'll have to we'll have to send you that actually we'll have to uh talk about that later <laughs> but uh there it it won awards not just for the recording but also for the packaging and design because it really? comes with tons of stuff so i yeah. think if you like alice cooper you'll like it
2: <laughs> i have one of his early um billion dollar babies uh Ooh, has like a big like you know the gatefolds are all out, super extravagant you know pretty
0: fun. That is cool. And so are there any scenes music moment wise in film that always stick with you and inspire you that you just like can't get out of your head you wake up you're like oh that moment in that movie with that music is so perfect.
2: There's some iconic stuff you know like Psycho you know which is just the way that sounds just you know it's just so bare like the stabbing like the, the iconic Psycho stuff uh I don't know. I mean, that not, thing that something that would keep me up is like a favorite score. I really love the score to um, Paris, Texas. Oh, <laughs> it's right, favorite nice. score. Um, uh-huh. I'm trying to think of what what I gravitate to. Um, I really like Thief. Uh, Tangerine Dream score.
0: Oh yes.
2: Um, in, in terms of a moment, one of the things that came musically, like score wise, one thing that I've always, I guess, gravitated to is uh, Back to the Future. Was like hugely impactful to me for whatever reason, um, and that, that's a score that I feel like when I hear it, I, it brings me back to like certain moments of my youth in 85, you know, like just walking around the beach, you know, like. it's it'll it'll always feel the same to me every time you hear those those cues you know so i love it so much i've seen it maybe like a million times
0: i love i love that score too i i I love whistling that's that theme (laughs) it's great um all right any last questions mark
1: yeah you mentioned that your wife did a little bit of vocal work um on uh righteous gemstones so do you have any Easter eggs that you've put into the score hoping that people would never notice? Like maybe you had a chorus say, I love macaroni and cheese in Latin. Or did you ever, when the opening credits are coming up, do you ever, do you ever punch up the theme so that like a trumpet hits when your name is on screen? Anything like
2: that? <laughs> uh, no, I've never done that. Anything like that. Um, no, I mean, I mean, I mentioned the the clogging thing earlier where I had that when I brought in the clogging, um, that's supposed to, you know, that's sort of a sneaky way of like reminding the audience that Walt and God, you know, Baby Billy is, you know, on characters' minds. Um, but yeah, I mean, one of the things that Danny and I talked about that we didn't execute for, for Gemstones was to um, explore reverse vocals into the score. And so there's a lot of vocal stuff in Gemstones, some of which is, you know, there's a where I'm actually singing words or like the choir singing actual words, uh, you know, not just like oohs and ahs. Um, but the, uh, we, we, we talked about the idea of maybe incorporating some sort of message and then turning it, you know, flipping it backwards and embedding it into the score as a subliminal (laughs) message. Um, and we didn't do that, but now I'm definitely going to revisit that idea. Um, (laughs) because I don't know why we didn't do that. I I guess we, we talked about it too early on and we just never, never came up again, but, yeah, I think I'm 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 gonna explore that for sure.
1: <laughs> that would be I'll awesome. I'll do it right
2: on my on my cue card, right on my name. <laughs> Great. Next yeah, time. exactly.
1: And then, do you think you know because there is sort of a rock vibe to this because these mega churches have this you know, they have rock walls for kids and you know they, it's it's like an auditorium. So, uh, do you ever think that a, a fuzzy guitar, a la Dusty Hill and Billy Gibbons, would fit in somewhere at some point?
2: Oh yeah, I mean, I think that my buddy, uh, the, the drummer that I use a lot, um, Scott Nurkin, uh, he's a huge ZZ Top fan, but not, but he's like early, you know, ZZ Top. He's like one of those, What's that?
1: Like Trace Ombres or back when? Yeah, yeah. The, I mean, uh, I mean, electric sidewalk. No,
2: like yeah, the no. <laughs> uh, he's, he's he's one of the he's one of those you know, audio files, like aficionados that, um, that I mentioned earlier. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that. Yeah, well, there's a there's a storyline that, and for season two that I don't want to really give anything away, but it goes back to a, a, an area of Tennessee and a back in time um, to the '60s, I think, maybe '50s, um, I think '60s. Um, anyway, the um, and I was before you know obviously everything's on hold right now for the production, so we're not working on the show. But early on, I was sketching out ideas that was uh, guitar related. Like I looked into a bunch of like kind of psych fuzz stuff from. Memphis um from the 60s and 70s and wanted to try to infuse some sort of um of that sound into that time or that the characters that are revolving around you know that that time is revolving around and so yeah I mean I have a ton of guitars and pedals and would uh easily like to incorporate I mean some of that into the score I mean in terms of like Billy Gibbons and he's uh I don't know, it will sound that good. <laughs> but it'll sound I'll warp it and make it weird, you know, and make it uh our own.
1: Well, that'll be cool. I hope uh, fingers crossed that it works out.
0: Thanks. <laughs> Very cool. And one of my last things for you, I read somewhere that you have a penchant for gardening hot peppers as the Carolina Reaper, Carolina Reaper
2: pepper, one of them, and do you eat these hot peppers? I do. Yeah. I have a, uh, every summer I grow a pepper garden in my backyard and, um, the, the, the population of that garden varies year to year. Um, but there, this year there is a, a reaper pepper. Uh, I didn't have one last year, I don't think. Um, but yeah, I'd grow them and I make hot sauce and I eat them. <laughs> and I ship right, them so- out with all my friends. So like I, every Christmas I send out a hot sauce package to like a bunch of my friends.
0: That's awesome. I, I I love hot sauce. I love peppers, but I've never had the Carolina Reaper pepper because I'm too damn scared to eat that. Yeah. I mean, you
2: well, know, it's through the sauce. I, I don't, I don't like them too hot. I've, I've definitely had my run of sauce that it's too hot to eat, you know, and it's, that's not, that's not my preference. You know, I, I definitely prefer to have it have flavor you know so I, I like heat um, probably more than most people but I don't like extreme reaper heat um I don't eat them raw or anything um I have <laughs> tried them like when I first grew it my buddy and I cut it open and just like didn't eat it but just like you know touch it to our mouths in certain areas that uh like on the pepper just to, just to feel how hot it would be like that fresh off the vine and it was uh, very intense um but I wouldn't <laughs> personally like the stuff that i make is is a little more filtered so it's incorporates other flavors so it's not as just straight just straight heat
0: was that the hottest pepper you've had or what is the hottest pepper you've ingested <laughs>
2: that, <laughs> i guess so yeah there's a um there's one called the seven pot dougla <laughs> that is uh, up there um i've grown that i think i have some of those this year um I mean, there's so many now, it's, there's all these different hybrid strains that you can just the kind of-
0: seven pot Dougla, that's just your yeah, shit sound. Yeah, that up. sounds like a sequel
1: to the Babadook. It sounds like a horror movie. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I was telling my buddy all the peppers I have this year and he was like, Jesus, your, your garden sounds like a firework shop. Because <laughs> everything is just like fire blaster, or like you know, devil teeth. you know, everything just sounds like an intense firework.
0: No, that's amazing. Well, thank you, Joseph, for joining us on the podcast today. Is there anywhere that you want to tell our listeners where to find you online or listen to your music?
2: Uh, I mean, I guess I have some stuff on Spotify. There's a lot of, I mean, mostly you'd have to go uh, watch Gemstones or watch Never Have I Ever or Upload. Uh, Yeah, there's most, most things are online. Um, You know, I don't have a lot of music that's that I know of that's out there other than, you know, this, the usual channels, Spotify or Apple music. Um, Yeah.
0: For sure. For sure. And we're, we're real excited about this waxworks, uh, righteous gemstones album. I will definitely be in line to get that for sure.
2: Sweet. Yeah. They have, they have a couple. They have, there's waxwork. I should have plugged waxwork. Yeah. They have the vice principals, um, released from last year and then, yeah, they'll be doing gemstones this year. Yeah, Super excited.
0: So thank you so much for joining us and that is our show, The Unbalanced Note. Thanks for having me.